Zen Buddhism is a way and a view of life which does not belong to any of the formal categories of modern Western thought. It is not religion or philosophy. It is not a psychology or a type of science. It is an example of what is known in India and China as a way of liberation, and is similar in this respect to Taoism, Vedanta, and yoga. As will soon be obvious, a way of liberation can have no positive definition. It has to be suggested by saying what it is not, somewhat as a sculptor reveals an image by the act of removing pieces of stone from a block. Nat, good to be back on Made You Think. It is always good <laughs> to be here, Neil. How are you doing? Pretty good. Drinking some tea very appropriately while we are about to cover Waves End by Alan Watts. Yeah. So this was one that you picked out after we did, which book was it that kind of made you think of us doing this one? Um, We did, well, Finite and Infinite Games yeah, actually Finite had some connections games. to this, as you probably could tell as you were reading it. Yeah. Um, no, and then, I mean, there's also some things in, in Anti-Fragile, actually, that remind me of this book as well. Right. Um, I've actually read this book twice. I read it way back before I had actually looked. This is probably the first exposure I had to Buddhism. And then I recently reread it maybe, I want to say over the summer, so maybe like two, three months ago. And yeah, just like the second time actually had much more of an impact than the first time. First time, I think I just hadn't like lived enough for a lot of it to be relevant. And then this time it was just like every chapter was <laughs> relevant, it seemed like, uh, especially in part one, which we'll obviously get into. Yeah. Well, that's um, a funny thing with books is that sometimes you'll read it and it just won't be the right time. Yeah. You'll think, oh, this isn't that good. Yeah. Whatever. I was like, what's all the hype about, yeah. about this thing? And then like, yeah, I revisited it off of someone else's recommendation and they actually said that exact thing where it was like, you know, it's one of those books that like at certain times of your life, it could be super impactful. And at other times it might, you might just be like, okay, I don't, I don't quite get it. Yeah. So the book we're talking about obviously is The Way of Zen by Alan Watts. And I guess we don't need to go into Watts's background too much, but this is probably the area of work he's most known for. He was a British philosopher, writer, and speaker. He moved to the U.S. in the 30s and started Zen training in New York. And then I guess eventually he realized that there was a general misunderstanding of a lot of these principles in the West. And I think there still is. I thought that one of the interesting things in reading it was that despite being interested in Buddhism and religion, mythology, meditation for a while, there was a lot of stuff in here that I didn't know, especially about the differences between Zen, Buddhism, and more Southern Buddhism. Yeah. And to be fair, Watts has courted some controversy for right. his views here. Yeah, about his understanding or how, I think, what was it about his views on like meditation yeah, and the purpose of meditation? Sitting, yeah, particularly on sitting meditation and yeah. zazen. So we'll have to talk about that a bit more when we get there. But I think like in the grand scheme of things, these things are, you know, like at least for somebody as inexperienced in these things as, as I am and probably sounds like you are as well. I think it's still a really useful, like high level overview of what these things are. And it's interesting too, to tie it back to the Stoics because you see so much similarity. <laughs> so much similarity. Yeah. Between, it's like, it's like, really interesting too. It's like they both start from different sets of assumptions and frameworks, mm -hmm. but they seem to end up in almost the same exact spot. Well, yeah, you end up in similar spots and there is actually Stoic meditation. Oh. It doesn't get talked about that much in the big three, but if you read some of the other Stoic texts, they talk about a kind of Stoic meditation that it sounds pretty similar to the Zen meditation discussed here. And what are the, the big three for people that don't know? Oh, so Seneca, like Letters from a Stoic, episode two. Yeah, I think it's yeah. episode two, which everyone should go listen to. And then Marcus Aurelius, Meditations, and probably Epictetus, either Enchiridion or Discourses. Yeah. So without further ado, let's hop into, into the way of Zen. 
So Watts kind of started off the book because he's writing for a Western audience, which is obviously us. He starts off looking at the basic premises, the differences in those basic premises in how we assume that people think in the West versus in the East. And his main, his kind of his major point in that chapter that at least that really resonated with me is our focus in the West on what he calls conventional knowledge, which is things that you can name, things that you can put into discrete sets of symbols like words, math, uh, music, anything that can kind of be clearly distinguished. And he compares that to in the East, that's like just considered one type of knowledge. And there's other types of knowledge as well. And are there words for that other type of knowledge where they kind of, they use like words like just unconventional or knowledge unconventional, <laughs> or like the thing that is not knowable, right? right. Like, but basically it, it seems to me, at least it means things that are like things you do instinctively or by feel or things that, you, you know, you, you can't put into words how you do them, like you breathe. But if you try to explain how you, how breathe, you breathe to someone, yeah. <laughs> you really can't. Or it's like, how do you move your arm? I just move my arms. Just, just I just move my, you know, yeah. like, yeah, like, what are you doing to move your arm? No, you're just moving. Um, or you might say the arm moves. The arm moves. Yeah. Getting very zen here, Nat. <laughs> <laughs> but, but one of the things he points out that I think makes this interesting is that there's a difference in the languages. So the English language is very focused on these rigid conventions. Mm. And especially how in English, there's a clear difference between nouns, right, things and events. And so I think the example he gives here that's helpful is what happens to your fist when you open it, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing example. in English, yeah. right? Where it's like, well, your fist doesn't go anywhere. Right. It just becomes your hand. Right. And that sounds strange in English. Right. But I guess in Chinese, something with how the language is structured, words can be things and actions. And, and the so, same word. Yeah, exactly. And so this maybe makes some of the ideas in Zen a bit more digestible in ways that don't come off as clearly to people who think in English or in other Latin-based languages. You know what's weird, though, is certain... Tangent number one, by the way, of the episode, <laughs> we need to start calling these out on the show notes. <laughs> like tangent number one. Create like a flow um, diagram. Yeah, exactly. Um, some like startup names or company names are nouns and verbs. Mm. You say you're going to go Google something. Google, yeah. Or we're going to go Uber there. Uber there. Yeah. Or I'm trying to. Uh, well, that's actually a good. It's a good naming convention. Exactly. It's a good yeah. naming convention <laughs> where if you want to have like a good memorable name, it should be one that can be verbized or whatever. Or, yeah. <laughs> which is itself a verbization. Right. I suppose, <laughs> right. <laughs> and now we're getting into a loop here that's yeah, exactly. like GEB. We do a lot of foreshadowing. On I know. This, so well, this it's, good. Yeah. it's good. Yeah. So yeah, there are some words, I guess, that we use that are both, but in general, our language does discreetly separate nouns and verbs right. as two different things. Yeah, I also liked how he he said how in the West, like when you don't put labels on something, things can get very confusing. Yeah. And I know you've felt this before, probably when you're at like, you know, some type of networking thing or like a party and people are like, well, what do you do, Nat? And it's like, well, I know now you say you have like a standard thing that you go to, but Especially when you're like doing multiple projects, yeah. it's pretty hard. Exactly. Like, <laughs> what are you? Are you a writer? Are you a podcast host? <laughs> are you, uh, you know, marketing agency owner? Like, yeah, I don't know. But it's much easier when you can just say, oh, I'm an investment banker or, you know, like a much easier label. So I like how he has this section about, he says, a meeting of two strangers at a party is always somewhat embarrassing when the host has not identified their roles in introducing them for neither knows what rules of conversation and action should be observed. Yeah. 
Because I've definitely <laughs> seen that happen like many, many times. Yeah. And then people will immediately go to questions like, what do you do or where are you from? <laughs> to figure out what are the rules. To figure out what are the rules and also to figure out what box to put someone in. Yes. Which is yes. I, honestly, I think one of the really attractive things about part of this whole Zen philosophy is this idea of getting away from boxes. Yeah. This is much later in the book, but I just love the example he gives of the teacher of Zen philosophy in, in a university. Mm. And I guess on the first day of classes or something, he'll hold up a matchbox and he'll say, you know, what is this? And then some student will inevitably say, oh, it's a matchbox. And then he'll throw it at them and say, <laughs> no, it's this, right? Because as soon as you call it a matchbox, you're putting it in like a, a box, category. right? Yeah. Putting it in yep. a category, you're yep. defining it and you're losing some of that, like what you could call it, gestalt, right? Yeah, it's actual It's nature. actual essence, it's actual nature, yep. right? It's always richer than whatever linguistic box you put it into. And that's so true. Initially, when you hear that, or I think maybe this is also because the first time I read the book, I maybe rebelled against that idea a little bit. But if you really think about it, even when you say, oh, there's three people over there, you're putting those three individuals into a box, calling them people. Yeah. But they're really three different things. Like, right. You're making them artificially homogenous. You're making them right? artificially yeah. homogenous, right? Like they're not the same person. They're not identical. They're not identical. Like yeah. There's yeah. a lot of differences, a lot but of nuance. By putting them in the same box, in that instance, they're being treated as identical. Yeah. It's um, kind of like uh, heuristics, right? So it, obviously like Daniel Kahneman's research and all of that, that we use all these mental heuristics to make decisions and make our thinking easier. And this consolidation of forms and reality into language is its own kind of heuristic. Yeah, that's for sure. And part of the challenge of Zen is getting away from those linguistic conventions and just trying to think of things in their essence yeah. or be with them in their essence. Yeah. Definitely not an expert at explaining this. No, me neither. I'm going to use the excuse of like a lot of it's not meant to be spoken, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like that's part of the challenge with a book like this is that I guess this is in this first section too, where I guess our tendency in the West is to try to explain things, put them in boxes. But part of the idea with Zen and with the Tao is this idea of like Wu Wei, right? The the unexplained or like the it, what is not built, right? Like God creates by building. And I guess what is it, right? The Tao creates by like not doing. Just yeah. A weird concept to grasp. But it's really interesting when he starts getting into some of the examples of that. But yeah, I also thought like going back to what you were saying a minute ago, we don't just do this externally, right? We don't just do this with like putting other people into boxes. We do this by putting our own past into boxes so that we create a narrative for ourselves. Like, oh, I'm an engineer or I am a, you know, whatever, like whatever box you want to put yourself into, it's done via this sort of narrative, past narrative structure yeah. that you're doing. And our good friend Taleb would call it narrative <laughs> fallacy. Like I thought there was a huge link between what Watts is talking about here and what Taleb talks about when he talks about narrative fallacy. Yeah, very true. Because it's sort of what Watts is saying is that part of that idea is that we define ourselves by these past actions, right? But not even all our past actions. It's like a select, yeah, the select. It's like a select <laughs> few actions. Right. <laughs> and then the challenge is trying to think of yourself as only in this present moment because all the past is a fabrication in some right. way or another, right? Yeah. We know memory is incredibly faulty. And so it's like, how can you really say what you are based on the past? All you know is what you are in every given moment, yeah. right? I mean, again, this is later too, but like their whole idea of, of uh, illusion, Maya, I found to be really interesting. And again, I distinctly remember when I read that the first time thinking like, oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> like I was like, oh, it's clearly not an illusion. Like we, it's clearly reality. But I think what they mean is like your reality 
is an illusion that can be broken. And you're kind of like under a spell, right? Like when you're chasing after a certain goal, you view everything in the context of that goal. And then if like the next day your goal shifts, like your reality totally changes with that or what, you know, I'm using air quotes for what reality is here. But so their whole point of it being an illusion is I think pretty spot on. Well, if you want like a simple example of it, go buy a car or a certain backpack, right? Because then it will magically seem like everybody else has that same car and backpack. And we apologize for a bit of scuffling noise in the background during this episode. I promise I'm not running during the episode. We we have a small dog running around the the place here. But yeah, I think that's a perfect example of the illusion of reality, right? Because you never see those cars. Yeah, you never notice those cars until you own one. one. And then it's like, are there more people driving these? Did everyone have the same idea last weekend? Well, no, your reality is just different now. You're just noticing them. Yeah. That's so true. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, this whole narrative thing, I think that goes back, I think, a few episodes where you were talking about the map versus the terrain. Mm. And I think it's exactly that. So I think what Watts is saying here is when he talks about this sort of like narrative fallacy is basically like every time you're putting a label on something, you are abstracting it away from what it truly means. And I think in the West, I'm saying in particular, we do that with everything. And it creates misunderstandings in a lot more cases. And this is probably the illusion being shattered for me is like, as you read this book, you notice your personal interactions with people. You notice you'll say things or they'll say things that you interpret wrong or they interpret wrong. And that's not because either of you misheard the other person. It's because what you mean when you say a certain word isn't necessarily what that person's brain is interpreting as what you meant when you said that word. Yeah. (laughs) Right. That's like one of the challenges with politics, especially is that pretty much all of politics is basing around the same few impulses, right? The desire for prosperity, security, community, but then the belief in what those words mean is is where it comes down, you know, because I'm sure if you polled Democrats and Republicans and you asked them how important are these things to you, they would all say very high, right? It's just that to each person, your reality of achieving those things is very different. And it's kind of like the goal of, I think, a good book, right, is to help you reframe that reality that you're seeing. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's also interesting how he was able to put these concepts into words, like Mm -hmm. into a book, because it's a lot of it doesn't lend itself to books. I think like this part maybe does because there's a distinct contrast that he's showing. But in general, the concept of Zen is like, as he described in, you know, the quote that we used in the intro, it's like, you basically have to demonstrate it by showing what it's not. (laughs) chiseling away the marble right yeah Yeah. (laughs) reveals it yeah Um, but it's cool how he relates this it's interesting because it's taking a very meditative way of thinking and then he's making it appeal to westerners by tying it back to some of you know these inclinations to understand that we have like he's got this example about the conventional versus unconventional knowledge where he says that to be free from convention is not to spurn it but not to be deceived by it Mm. And that it's to be able to use it as an instrument instead of being used by it, which is really similar to the infinite versus finite player stuff that we were talking about in that episode, right? Where it's like, if you see all of these categories as illusions, that doesn't mean that you say, oh, well, nothing is real. Right. It means you recognize that they're all, you know, they're all category, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're all changeable. And then I feel like that can help you as an individual be less attached to your interpretations of reality right be more open to other ideas exactly which is not an easy thing to do no definitely not 
And again, actually, a lot of this, um, I think this is like probably really close in the book to where the part you just mentioned was, but he has this quote where he's talking about complexity and like this word, you know, complexity. So he says, we call our bodies complex as a result of trying to understand them in terms of linear thought of words and concepts. But the complexity is not so much in our bodies as in the task of trying to understand them by this means of thinking. It is like trying to make out the features of a large room with no other light than a single bright ray. It is as complicated as trying to drink water with a fork instead of a cup. So it's like not our bodies that are complex. It's our attempting to understand them with these categories, basically, these boxes. And that is really, really difficult, right? But your body is just your body. Right. (laughs) It's not any more complex or less complex than anything, you know, than a TV or than a book. Well, all those things are complicated in terms of when you look at it at the molecular level, they're all complicated. That's true. Yeah. I, I feel like maybe the counterpoint to this would be when you think in terms of AI. Okay. You're like AI and machines, right? It's been very easy to train systems to do math, but even walking is kind of tricky. But that's that's all in a human context, though. Yeah. So I guess that would be the point that supports what Watts is saying. It's complex for humans to put into program something. Yeah, exactly. For our ways of thinking, it's complex, but our bodies do it completely effortlessly. Nature does it. Yeah, nature does it effortlessly. Exactly. Um, Yeah. It also is hard to like zoom out of the human context. Well, and also the Western context, right? Because right. he gives that example right. of music where mm, in yeah. the West, you will typically learn music by learning to read notes and how those notes correspond to certain positions on the instrument yeah. and going through sheet music and practicing that way. And I guess in you know traditional Oriental music training, it was more you just listen to the other person playing and you try to reproduce those notes and you learn to hear and just improvise off of tones. Right? Session reminds me, I think you talked about how how people learn lang- like the best way to learn languages yeah. that that like came straight to my mind when I was reading this. Mm. I was like, oh, this is exactly what Nat was talking about. Do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, well, I mean, it was just a big realization for me that when I went to Paris and I was living there for a month, I learned more French in that time by having a French tutor who would take me out in the streets and make me do things. Right. Like he would take me to a market and I had to ask people where the bathroom was. Right. And then try to have like a fun conversation and make it social. And those kinds of challenges where you're actually just immersed in it and trying to figure stuff out. I probably learned more French in that month than I learned of Spanish in three years in high school. It reminds me of top down versus bottom up kind of thing. Right. Yeah, when you're building from the bottom up very organically, naturally, it can grow more efficiently, much faster as opposed to like the top down implementation, which he talks about here about the whole uh, way versus Wu Wei, where mm. the, you know, the Wu Wei, which is like the not making, he also calls growth. It comes back to this later, uh, but this again goes back to finite versus infinite games where you have the garden and the machine, right? And the machine is this top down built from without process. Rules, like- exactly. Yeah. Whereas the garden or the plant or the Wu Wei, grows naturally it grows internally right it's bottom up and the latter process i think is just like inherently superior right i think it'd be hard to argue it seems more stable yeah much more stable less fragile (laughs) yeah much less fragile (laughs) actually taleb talks about that too yeah he He talks about bottom-up processes being more fragile and more robust and that's clearly an element in zen philosophy too which is pretty it's just really interesting to see all these ideas uh tangent number two seems really interesting to see all these ideas pop up in various different things that we're covering on the podcast like letters anti-fragile this book obviously finite infinite games right you see like and i swear we haven't planned it this way because like i haven't read and you know i hadn't read finite infinite games before and a lot of the other books we've done like i hadn't read really before so it's not like we're picking these books 
because they because fit to a theme, theme no. it just seems to keep popping up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think too that if you, uh, I mean, one, one of the benefits of going so deep on these books is that we're naturally making the connections. Yeah, there's right? that too. We're just seeing it because that's the illusion that we have right now. It's the same. It's, <laughs> it's the, the reality that we thing. see. Yeah, no, it's the same as the car thing, right? It's right. like when you have a car and then you see other cars that are the same. It's the same thing. We're seeing these concepts, so we're seeing them everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so maybe maybe it's a total illusion that these concepts are everywhere. <laughs> well, at the same time, though, I think that there are I think that there are some underlying concepts that philosophy and thought keep going back to, yeah. and I feel like we're just you know touching on some of them through exploring all of these pretty rich books and rich schools of thought, which is exciting. It's yeah, kind of fun. Yeah, I mean, I know he said in the beginning that Zen is not a form of philosophy. Because that's the that I took it as a form of philosophy. Like as I was reading, I was like, if you can call Stoicism type of philosophy, you can call this a type of philosophy as well. I guess um, the way you could argue that you can't is that it doesn't have a certain type of thought you're supposed to subscribe it's more to. Of what you shouldn't. Do. It's more of what you shouldn't do, <laughs> yeah. right? Which I guess you could still call a philosophy, but I feel like somebody who truly understands Zen would have no way of describing it. Right. It actually reminds me a lot of the curse of knowledge. Mm. So somebody who's really an expert at something is pretty much incapable of describing how to do what they do to a novice. And so that's why a lot of experts are bad teachers. Yeah. Right. You need somebody who's more in the middle to help mediate between the two right. because the expert has totally developed an intuition for the skill. And so I think somebody who fully understands Zen can probably only speak in these. Is it cones or koans? I think it's two oh, syllables. Uh, the, the Zen riddles. Yeah, something like, uh, we'll just say Cohen's. I yeah, guess. we'll say Cohen's, yeah. I guess. Um, <laughs> right, so like, maybe that's why it can't be a philosophy. A Stoic can clearly dictate As, their yes. views. Yeah, it's much more discreet, I guess, what they, or explicit, like what they want you to do, or how you're supposed to do things. Definitely. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, so the next part where he's talking about, like he says to understand Taoism, right? Because I think he's using Taoism as like a base to start understanding Buddhism, especially Zen Buddhism. He said, we must be prepared to admit the possibility of some view of the world other than the conventional, mm -hmm. some knowledge other than the contents of our surface consciousness. Uh, I really like that part yeah. because you kind of have to be, that's like the basic premise from which everything else flows, right? If you don't admit that there's non-conscious knowledge, you kind of stop there. Right. Or admit that there is indescribable yes. knowledge, right. indescribable experience. I think there are people who like wouldn't, quite admit they would say maybe there's a couple things that happen but most most things are conscious right like there are definitely people who are hyper rationalists right who that's probably the worldview that they ascribe to yeah and, and you wouldn't go too far with them on this no. uh, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's a very <laughs> limiting view to believe that everything needs to be super clearly defined in order to be true right like i think that's one of the criticisms of the socratic method where in so like in his dialogue with Euthyphro, he's trying to get Euthyphro to define piety, right? Acting godlike. And he ends up, you know, taking sort of Euthyphro through all this like circular reasoning and showing him that he doesn't really know what piety is. But I think the Zen response would be like, it just is. Right. It just is being godly. Right. Right. We don't have to define you it. You just say it is. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's nothing special about English where we can, you know, say what it is to be godly. It's right. like uh, whatever Chief Justice Roberts, right? I know porn when I see it. Yeah. Right. It's like you just, you, you know. Just know. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't have to be formally defined. Right. And I think that makes some people uncomfortable, yeah. but I think there are definitely areas where it applies. I can see why it would make like lawyers uncomfortable because yeah. you're in the business <laughs> of like clearly defining things. Yeah. But. For everyday life, like we just know. <laughs> yeah. And I think like for somebody probably to really uncomfortable that, for an AI person too. 
Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, like, that's the whole premise or part of the premise yeah. of go to Lecture Pod. Right? Stop. 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 <laughs> stop. <laughs> Save it for next week. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I feel like you have to have an experience that is indescribable in order to understand this idea. Yeah. And I imagine most people haven't had a truly indescribable experience because I think you'd really you have, have if to, you think about it. You have maybe. I mean, I'm thinking like you probably have to get very into meditation, take very high dose psychedelics. uh, Well, okay. So it was in one of the, uh, I forget which Jordan Peterson biblical series episode, he goes on a little tangent about like thoughts. And he was like, basically this kind of similar idea right around rationalism and uh, how people make decisions. So he was saying, oh, like, you know, I'm paraphrasing here. I don't remember the exact quote, but he was saying something like where, uh, People say like, oh, how did you make that decision? And they say, oh, well, I thought about it and I weighed the choices and like, you know, this is what I chose. And he's like, then you have to ask them the question, like, where do your thoughts come from? Mm. Like, that's indescribable. Where do your thoughts come from? I mean, you can say, okay, it's partially your background, partially your upbringing, partially your genes, but like, it's indescribable. You can't pinpoint, you can't say this thought was 20% my background, (laughs) 30% my college and like 45% this book. Right, exactly. Like. You don't know where your thoughts come. That's indescribable. Like you can't pinpoint discreetly what's causing that thought. So I mean, but I feel like you most people wouldn't think about that. Yeah, <laughs> it becomes or, this recursive exactly. uh, situation. I think that the desire not to think about it, yeah, or the the desire not to think about not being able to think about it right. would force them to create some explanation. We'll save all these infinite loops right. though for next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're getting too much into that. <laughs> yeah, but that that is a good example, right? Is that there are certain questions you can ask someone. What were you thinking about for the indescribable? part like when you were saying they have to have experienced something indescribable i I was thinking of psychedelics oh okay yeah i feel like sam harris has talked about that too where he basically says like yes you can have somebody train in meditation for years and get them to the point where they can reliably induce a like indescribable mental experience or you can just the, give them a couple tabs of acid, throw them on the couch, yeah. and they're having that experience whether they like it or not. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Which, you know, obviously, you know, we don't play doctors on the internet. We're yeah. not recommending you do this. Like, it's illegal in most places. But that is a very effective way to induce indescribable experiences. Yeah. Right? So... Yeah. I think that's like, that's the example I always go to, right? Because like I've done DMT, which is like a super strong psychedelic. Yeah. Yeah. And there are absolutely no words to describe like the experience that happens on it. And every time I try to, I feel kind of silly, right? Where it's like, it's like, this is not meant to be. Yeah. It's like, I just really can't like, there aren't good words for any of it. And so I kind of just like give up. (laughs) Which is tangent number three of the episode. Go for it. Wonder how much of our reality we just don't even experience because there's no words for it. Yeah. Well, because we used to only see in a few colors, right? Yeah. Well, like, okay. Is uh, that true? It is. I've well, seen yeah. that, but then I always wondered: is that like some clickbait thing that I no, clicked no, on? No. So, like ancient Rome time, yeah. we didn't really have a word for purple, and or well, okay. So we saw like blue and purple as basically the same color. We didn't have a clear way to distinguish between them. So when you read Homer and he talks about the wine-stained sea. That sounds weird to us, right? Because we're like, the ocean obviously isn't purple, but they saw them as pretty much the same color. 
And so also when you hear about like purple being a royal color back then, we don't actually know if it was purple. It could be blue. It could have been blue, right? Huh. Because there was very little differentiation among them. Have you seen that? Uh, I think it was Nat Geo. I'm not sure. But they took these color wheels and they went to rural Africa and they put them in front of tribes people. And they couldn't distinguish between colors that to us look obviously different. It was like really striking things like huh. orange and red, for example. Huh. I think that was one of them. And there was there were some stronger ones, too. Like maybe maybe it was like orange and purple. It was some weird ones, but colors that they would not have seen living on the Serengeti all their life. But if you then put a color wheel in front of them with 10 different shades of green, where like uh, so nine of them are the same they and one is different. To, they would be able to distinguish. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. They could immediately tell which of those shades of green was different and no Westerner could. That's incredible. Right? It took them like half a second. And they probably have words to describe the yeah. different shades. Well, it's like the Inuit, right? They have mm. like 12 different words for snow. Yeah. <laughs> Right to us because it's just snow. It's just snow. It's just snow. We but if you live in the snow, snow, we know there's different kinds of snow. But we don't have different words for it, and we probably don't even know all the different kinds. Like we probably just like, oh, it's small snowflakes or big snowflakes. Yeah, <laughs> that's like it's wet snow or it's dry. You know, like, yeah. but they probably have like way more clarity on the different types of snow, and it's probably they, they have to. They have to. That's right. their environment. Well, and uh, I think generally women see more colors than men, too. And women know more words. I mean, anybody who's been to school and, you know, used crayons knows that from their childhood. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like it happens every day. Like, What's the difference between cerulean and turquoise? Right. (laughs) Some people can see the difference and some can't. I mean, I took a class in I guess it wasn't a class, but it was sort of a workshop in presentation design in college. And after taking that course, I could see a lot of things on slide decks that people who hadn't taken it couldn't see. Were just like subtle differences uh, in alignments of objects or differences in shades or something having a shadow and something not. It stood out really obviously to me and it didn't to other people, but it was just because I had practiced and trained that, yeah. that part of the brain. So yeah. yeah, I feel like your language definitely shapes your reality. Yeah. And then the question is, like you said, what, are we what aren't we what seeing? Are we missing, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson just published a book about uh, astrophysics for people in a hurry. And he has a really interesting and kind of scary section in there about how because the universe is expanding at a certain rate and because light can only travel so fast, there will eventually be a period where it will be impossible to see other galaxies from within our galaxy. We'll be completely blind to them. And at that point, if somebody was going to restart science, it would seem that there was only this galaxy because they would have no way to see all this other stuff because it would have expanded too too far far beyond. So light could no longer reach from this other galaxies, basically. And so then he says, what has happened in the last 13 billion years that we can no longer see? Right. Wow. And that's weird to think about. Yeah. (laughs) Because there's all this stuff that could have happened. Even on a more micro level, like on Earth. We only really know things that have left fossils, right? In terms right. of, you know. And we keep finding new, new ones, things. Or right? even like even just human history, mm-hmm. right? Like, wasn't it? Yeah, we just found that just found some tribe in uh, like British Columbia up in Canada. It was what, like a half hunter gathering, like half 13,000 yeah. years ago? Yeah, uh, semi-nomadic. So. Just things like that kind of completely upend the whole presumed history of right. the continent. <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, yeah, there's a lot probably that we don't see. But I, I noticed... Um, I don't know if you, like you said, you used to meditate or do you still meditate much or not? Having, now that I've read this, I'm trying to get back into it because I look at it very differently having read this book. Mm, Okay. Yeah. Yeah, We'll get into that chapter, but I was, I was just going to make a comment about what I feel like happens 
to me as a result of meditating. Mm. So it's like, uh, cause I fall in and out of it. Like the past couple months I've been into it, but that's happened before. And then I fall out of the habit. So I'm trying to like stick with it more. Um, what can I do? I'm human. But, uh, <laughs> like I notice when I am meditating more, I tend to look at things more. Like if I see something, I'll like look at it more closely. Like I even notice, let's say we're drinking tea. Mm. Like I'll see the color of the tea. Like I'll distinctly remember seeing the color of the tea. As opposed to just like, oh, it's tea. And then I just drink it, right? Where it's like, I don't know. Maybe that's like a bad example. But I just feel like I see things, mm-hmm. like actually see them. Observe them. more. Yeah. yeah, observe them. That doesn't mean you see everything. Like there's probably tons of things we're just totally oblivious to. Because either we don't have words for them or we're just not looking closely enough. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I think that's just, it's a really crazy thought where every time you get a new understanding of reality, part of reality opens up to you. And then... You know what this goes back to though? The whole hmm. illusion thing. We're straight up living in an illusion because what we are perceiving is not really what reality is. Well, I think maybe illusion is a strong word. I would say like an abbreviation. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we're definitely not seeing everything. Yeah. Right. And we know that clearly like we don't see ultraviolet. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. That's true. We know that. We definitely don't. Right. There's all and there's all these like radio waves floating around. We don't see those either. But they're real. But they're real. Yeah. They're very real. (laughs) And then in the more metaphysical way where we just don't have words for some things in our experience. Right. Which we might be experiencing every day. And even we might know we're experiencing them, but we might only notice when they're not there. That makes sense. Like things we know by feel. Like have you ever played a sport that was very feel based or basically every sport is when you, you know, at different levels. But like, so I grew up playing tennis, right? And tennis is one of those things. that's like very much a feel based sport. And if you didn't play, let's say for like three weeks, you would know if something's off, whether it's your footwork time, like it's very hard to discreetly place like what is off. But yeah, you just you just feel off. And I guess that's where this tying back to the scientific method, right? It's imperfect. And if we tried to, I guess that's especially an area where when you try to apply a label to it, you really lose something because mm, some yeah. stuff has a clear label where well, the scientific method works in science. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Right? <laughs> but I think there's a lot of people trying to apply that to, you know, I mean, everything today, right? Like whether it's uh, marketing or whether it's, uh, you know, corporate innovation or like whatever, like people try to apply those concepts everywhere. And I think there's principles that can be applied. Uh, I think even right before the episode, we were talking about experimentation in marketing and experimentation is like very important, but it's also important to remember that you're not doing like a physics experiment. (laughs) Yeah. And there there is always going to be an element of somebody who's really good will just have an intuitive feel for things and they might not be able to explain it using scientific terms or have data for it, but that doesn't mean it's wrong. Right. Right. Exactly. I mean, this also reminds me of what we talked about with mastery Mm -hmm. where, you know, someone could develop that feel over time and with a lot of practice and right. a good apprenticeship and stuff, people develop that that feel-based approach to doing things, but they might not be good teachers because they can't discreetly put that into words. Yeah, exactly. So we've uh, gotten through the first chapter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Continue on to the origins of Buddhism. It, yeah. To be fair, I feel like the first chapter was the most dense. And it was like, like, probably the longest. I didn't look at the number of pages, but I would say it felt like the most information heavy I think I got the most out of it. I felt like after the first chapter, I had 70% of the benefit that I got from the book. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I loved rereading the first chapter. But I mean, a lot of the next parts are like history based or so they're not as as many takeaways that are there. Well, and there's a huge distinction too that we're about to get into that I did find really valuable from this next section of the book is this huge distinction between different schools of Buddhism and is actually what made me more interested in getting back into some meditation. Oh, so yeah, but that's a, it's a bit of teaser for what's to come. So let's start with the origins of Buddhism. 
reasonable, that is, human, men will always be capable of compromise. But men who have dehumanized themselves by becoming the blind worshippers of an idea or an ideal are fanatics whose devotion to abstractions makes them the enemies of life. So this is, I guess, one of the main differences with Buddhism to, yeah, to, I guess, what you might call religions. Oh, right. That's true, because they wouldn't really call themselves a religion. Yeah, or, yeah at least that's what it seems like. Yeah, it's, I think it's very much. Why do we classify Buddhism as a religion? Honestly, I think people who have done their research don't. Okay. They think of it more of a school of thought. Uh, to be fair, be like calling your religion stoicism or something. Yeah, almost. exactly. It's much more a philosophy, I think, yeah. than a religion. Although, to be fair, there are putting in boxes. I guess. Air, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Putting in boxes, right? It, it, it would be un-Buddhist to call Buddhism anything. Or, yeah. yeah, a philosophy or religion, right? <laughs> Although, I, I think to be fair, there are versions of Buddhism where there is more religious. it is more religious tibetan buddhism right is more like because i know when i went to um oddly in china actually i was really surprised in hindsight that this was there mm. there's a lamasary just like tibetan buddhism and there's a lot of like deities that they have which yeah. i was really surprised by because i wasn't familiar with any of that uh i was only familiar with the zen stuff that i had read so when i went there and i saw all these deities i was like wait this is buddhism though so like what are all these like gods and like you know, idols basically that are there, but it's just a different way of representing a lot of the similar concepts. Cause afterwards I, I like looked at a lot of it up cause I was really surprised that it was part of it, especially cause this book had been like my only exposure to anything of their religion. Yeah, so, yeah. uh, yeah, it was like, I think it was a way to make it like easier to understand. That's like my take on it. Yeah. Well, I mean, to be fair, you could argue that that's true with a lot of Christianity and stuff too, where if you look at Old Testament, you know, the original Hebrew Old Testament God, who in the original form, right, is not supposed to have any image, is a very like formless type of God. It's more like a pervasive energy, pervasive force in the universe than the, you know, white flowing beard, more Christian God yeah, that you think like of. Yeah, like a deity. Like yeah, actual, much, much less yeah. of a deity. I mean, this is like one of the Ten Commandments, right, is to have no idols of your God. And I don't remember where I was, which book this was in, but one of them was talking about it, how there's actually value to not giving God an image because as soon as you give God yeah. an image, it defines right. it. Just like what they're talking about in here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right. I so. think in uh, Islam as well, you can't have... Oh well, yeah, they're militant yeah, you about You can't it. have idols. Actually, technically, you can't have music either. Really? Uh, like religious music, although uh, there is. Okay. There is now. I mean, and there yeah. also is... Uh, I think there's like different sects that believe like different things about that. But I think like the sort of most orthodox ones are like you can't make songs about god i suppose any attempt to confine the definition of god is probably seen as sacrilegious yeah which is a really interesting again how all that ties back to the zen idea right it's yeah. like it can't be defined it can only be defined by what it is not right it could be it could be a way to protect against like tyranny and individual leaders right because if somebody could take over the church and create god in an image similar to theirs then that might give them sort of this undue you know influence where as a ruler they're controlling the church as well and so right. by keeping religion amorphous in that way you create this like much more distributed ideology that doesn't have to get tied into a single person yeah i'm reading a book right now by actually benazir bhutto she was a prime minister of pakistan and uh, she was assassinated like a few years ago. Mm. Oh, yeah. Um, you were telling me about this. Yeah. So she was one of like, uh, they've like struggled between military rule and then democracy and dictatorship. Like they've gone through kind of like the whole spectrum. So she and, and her father originally, but then she kind of like picked up the mantle after I think he was assassinated too. Like they were basically pushing for democracy. 
in the country. So I'm only on like the first part of her book, but basically she's giving a full breakdown of like basically where terrorists get the interpretation of the Quran completely wrong. Mm. And I'm on the history part of that. And she was saying this has been going on since Islam was started, but probably true for every religion where a lot of these things like burqas and wearing like the hijab and stuff, these are actually Arab tribal traditions that predate the Quran. That basically, it was like these very patriarchal societies that existed pre-Quran times. But then she gives all these examples from the Quran, which are actually like males and females have very equal roles. The Muhammad's wife or yeah, Muhammad's wife was a businesswoman in the Quran even. And like what the Quran says about male-female relations is like very different from how at least us, we in the West seem to think like interpret how their religion is portraying male-female relationships. Mm. And so like, she's just giving that example of how it's been so misinterpreted. And to your point about how like, when you give it these hard, fast rules of what God or Allah or whoever wants, it lets somebody use those rules for control. So anyway, it's just like really interesting how all these things are. I'm sure it's true for every religion, not just Islam. I'm sure that's true in Christianity as well. Yeah. Well, we've seen it be true throughout history, right? More so with Christianity and Islam. Judaism has never really been. It's never been as organized, right? As like Christianity or Islam. Yeah, it's never been like organized into any kind of like militarized way. And Hinduism is like barely a discreet yeah. religion. Like Hinduism is not even right. really a religion right. to begin with, yeah. right? That's just it's like kind of like a collection. Western thing, right? right? It's kind of like in the Buddhism sense too of like boxing it into one thing. But yeah, it's like, I mean, there's Hindus who believe in different, many different things, but they would all put themselves in the Hindu box. But that's not the same as like the Christian box right. or the Islam box. There's not like that one, you know, there's n- rule book yes. that you have to follow. Right. Yeah. Actually, on that note, one Mm -hmm. thing that was really interesting about this sort of origins of Buddhism chapter is that a lot of the ancient texts are in Sanskrit or Pali, which I I wasn't familiar with that language, but said there's significant problems with interpretation. Like, did you uh, you remember that that. part where... It was kind of interesting. A lot of the interpretations are just sort of best guesses. It's based on this one guy's dictionary that he made in like the (laughs) 1800s, but he like admits that he just guessed Guessed in a lot of cases. (laughs) So yeah, basically like Watts uses this... um, kind of like disclaimer at the beginning of this of like our understanding of all Buddhist history is based on our understanding of Sanskrit, which like is fairly weak yet to begin with. So, um, and then he follows that up by giving another disclaimer, which is that we don't know how long these things were oral traditions before they were actually written down. Right. So you don't know how much things have changed. Yeah. Uh, so in between. Like, sure. So. It's, although to be fair, going back to the power of myth episode, yeah. right. The version of the story that evolved through oral tradition could actually be better right. than the That's written true. version. That could right. definitely be true. Yeah. This is what survives, right? Yeah. And I don't know if this was like a, I don't remember from the book, maybe if you do, but if this is a Buddhist concept or it was like the Hindu concept before mm-hmm. of like the dualities, like I think that was the Buddhist concept, right? Where they're basically talking about like you can't have light without darkness yeah. or you can't have like good without bad or you can't have like order without disorder. So you you kind of need both. It's definitely so part do- of Hinduism as well. Okay. Because a lot of I think in a lot of the Hindu tradition, especially some of the deities, they represent both at once. Right. Right. Like Shiva is the yeah. destroyer and the yeah. birther of worlds. Right. Which I guess you can't create if you never destroyed but if you create it's going to be destroyed at some point yeah right? yeah. yeah so it's like presenting that duality through mm. those stories i feel like you know it probably is a 
older tradition that influenced both branches, yeah, right? right? Yeah. Because, I mean, Buddhism is a spinoff of Hinduism in a lot of ways, yeah. where the the really aggressive Hinduism... Well, was, and Watts talks about that, too. Yeah. He says, like, a lot of what was part of the... is written as, like, Buddha's biography, it's... A lot of it was in accordance with what any Hindu in his position would have done, right. like the whole renunciation thing, like going to the forest and like meditating and like that maybe he did it earlier in his life than you would normally do in like the Hindu tradition. But it wasn't like I think Watts made like the special point that it wasn't like some radical like revolution no, that no. he was doing this, right? Um, it was kind of in accordance with a lot of it. But I think the difference... So spinoff might be actually interesting way of thinking about it. Well, yeah, I mean, as I understood it, the Hindu version of pursuing enlightenment was much more restrictive. And part of the difference with the Buddha's interpretation was this like more middle path, right? Of like pure moderation between both sides, which yeah. is interesting because it's the same as Aristotelian ethics, huh. right? Yeah. Because Aristotle's ethics is whole based on the middle way yeah. in between, you know, excess and neglect. I mean, I know this came up and I want to say power of myth that episode, yeah. but there was contact, right? Between these two. There was some form places, of trade going on, right? I think. Yeah. Like Buddhism was sure, post Alexander or pre? No, no. Yeah, Alexander is, was born in 356 BC, died 323 BC, and then Buddhism. Yeah, hard to say when it started because so the much. whole oral tradition thing, like fifth century yeah, BC, fifth century BC. So like 500 BC. And I'm sure if Alexander got to India, probably wasn't the first one. There must he must have known that India exists for him to want to go there. Yeah, and to be fair, Alexander the Greek's teacher was Aristotle, oh, right? Okay, so yeah. Aristotle would have been like 400 BC, so almost the same time wow. the yeah Buddhism is coming about. That's pretty wild. That's wild. Yeah, basically the same idea emerging <laughs> yeah. in both parts of the world around that, the same like, time. I feel like this has happened with inventions too. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about, where like how it seems like the same invention pops up in multiple places. This is going to sound super like metaphysical, but it almost gives like a lot more credibility than you'd normally think to like Carl Jung's like collective consciousness idea of how we're all elements of a larger brain, basically. Yeah. Well, and then the <laughs> or same. the Elon Musk like we live in an illusion thing. That's the other, <laughs> or not an illusion, a simulation. <laughs> to, to be fair, it's not really Elon Musk. It's, <laughs> it's not his, his popularized. Yeah, he's yeah. the one who got famous for okay, it, which who, I'm sure Nick Bostrom loves. Did Nick Bostrom originate it? Uh, I'm pretty sure. Or did he? Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. So technically, Descartes originated yeah, the like right, okay. first version of it. <laughs> so he's probably not too happy with Nick. Yeah. Bostrom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, it is crazy that those same ideas would originate uh, like time, around the like, same time. It's almost like identically the same time. It is. Well, I think that's what's so crazy about reading these old Hindu Buddhist texts and then reading like Stoic and virtue mm, ethics yeah. in Rome and Greece is like they're really similar. They're See, like now similar. if that happened, you wouldn't be that surprised because you're like, oh, they probably saw it on Reddit. And yeah. like, <laughs> it, was, it was number it's one on, on the Reddit. same blog. Exactly. Yeah. So was, now it's not like that crazy if there's like a nationalist movement happening in the UK and in the US and in, you know, wherever else. Right. Like that's not as crazy for that. Back then. Yeah. Back then it's like. That's nuts. What? <laughs> <laughs> Unless they had these things. No. Yeah. <laughs> Former civilization. Yeah. <laughs> We find like an old iPhone that like, yeah. completely changes like everybody's interpretation <laughs> of like it's just cycles. Yeah, <laughs> two thousand year cycles. <laughs> mm. But yeah, so he actually does talk a lot about Buddhism coming from Hinduism, and he makes the same point that we've been making, which is that there wasn't really a Hinduism at the time, right? It was just this collection of stories, ideas, shared mythology. One other thing in this section that I really found interesting was this idea of karma, of how 
I guess I'll just read it from the book where he said, man is involved in karma when he interferes with the world in such a way that he is compelled to go on interfering. When the solution of a problem creates still more problems to be solved. When the control of one thing creates the need to control several others. Karma is thus the fate of everyone who tries to be God. He lays a trap for the world in which he himself gets caught. I thought of like that interventionista thing that uh, Taleb always talks about. Yeah. Where it's like you try to fix one thing and you create like 10 other problems that then also need to be fixed and then <laughs> cause like 10 other problems. Yeah. Well, and how we tied it into reincarnation here too, right? Where I think the the easy interpretation from the West is believing that the belief is that you will die and be reincarnated as something else. Right. But the interpretation he gives here that I really like is that reincarnation is happening moment to moment. Totally like this makes so much more sense to me when it's described this way, right? Which is it's a metaphor again, like Mm -hmm. back to the whole metaphor thing that we talked about in Power of Myth. But it's yeah, it's like your ego is being reborn moment to moment and that your release from that is when you stop holding on. Exactly. Yeah. When you stop trying to have this constant control when you're not in the karmic loop. Yeah, so to speak. Yeah, it just makes so much more like it clicks when you have that analogy as opposed to the well, and it's uh, way easier to digest as a secular audience. mm, Yeah, that's true. You're not thinking, oh, you believe that if you're bad, you're going to come back as a grasshopper. Yeah, right. (laughs) (laughs) Which and okay, so to be fair, I'm sure that is in some people's belief system, but that is a much harder idea to digest than the idea, or especially in this book, which is aimed at a Western audience to convince them of these ideas. Like that would not go over as well. No, no. But then I also like how he defines nirvana here, right? Where the one version is escaping from suffering. This idea that, oh, all life is suffering, which is, I think, how a lot of people interpret one of the core ideas of Buddhism. Mm. And then he reframes it as frustration, Uh, right? Where what you're really escaping is this feeling of, ah, I just can't like get control, right? It's like the water is slipping through your hands, right? You're constantly frustrated. You can't hold on. And then Nirvana in this case is being released from that cycle of frustration. That feeling. Yeah. I also liked how uh, kind of last thing on Nirvana, how he said it's like, it can't be intentional. Mm. It like arises spontaneously. And I think, I don't know, we've all kind of felt that even like for being happier and stuff, if you think that, oh, I'm happy, all of a sudden, you're not happy anymore. Or if you ask yourself, like, oh, oh, am I happy? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but there's just moments that you're happy, right? But you can't, you never are like, okay, I should be happy. Like, you're never <laughs> genuinely happy in that moment. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I mean, from having some experience meditating, I've definitely had that experience too, yeah. where you'll have that really brief moment of kind of clarity and then you'll go, oh my God, I'm doing it. And then and it's like, ah, gone. wait, shit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's gone <laughs> i mean i think again going back to sports like sports are a really good mm. uh, have a really good similarity to this when you're in the zone so the opposite of what i was saying when you know you're just off right when you're just in the zone if you start thinking about the fact that you're in the zone you're not in the zone anymore you just gotta be basically right and like well, if that's the only way to stay in the zone it reminds me of like there was some book on productivity and stuff and it was talking about flow you know how oh you got to get into flow to get your best work done yeah. and like that's certainly true but what they recommended was figuring out when you're in flow by giving yourself like mobile notifications asking yourself if you're in flow where then you can like check in and see if like things you're doing are putting you in flow and oh, that's that's a terrible idea right? knock you out of flow. exactly it's deliberately well, knocking we were talking you out about it for writing too right it's like yeah when you write like there's days where and times when you're in flow right and the words just, just come out like yeah you know you look up Done. and it's like wow i've written several thousand words and it doesn't <laughs> feel like i did anything i mean that's not nearly it doesn't happen nearly enough for me at least but 
I don't think getting mobile notifications would do anything to help that. No, certainly not. Should we move on to Mahayana Buddhism here? Yeah. This is sort of the next stage in the development. We probably don't have to spend too much time. Yeah, this this again, I think a lot of it's going back to like the history and the development of these different sects within Buddhism. What I like about this one is how it highlights one of the main issues with the original Indian Buddhism. Which is the striving to make it accessible part or? The striving striving to not strive, right? right. Yeah. You can't go for enlightenment. Exactly. Because in pursuing it, you are contradicting it. And you see, like, we'll see later on how this moves into Zen. But yeah, yeah, this was like a big, I guess, probably realization on their part, whoever sort of founded these schools that, yeah, you're kind of contradicting it pursuing by it. pursuing it right <laughs> yeah the first step would be to stop trying to reach nirvana right right yeah and then well okay now you're not going anywhere again you can't will yourself into the zone yeah for sports like or it's ever happens. anything yeah yeah well and they actually have a name for that person too right the bodhisattva mm. is the one who realizes that there is that contradiction in a nirvana attained for oneself this. Oh, because you're doing it for yourself. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, and in doing it, right, it's it's contradictory. And so th- this kind of Buddhism highlights how it's really futile to go after liberation in which there is no striving because of that contradiction, right? You're desiring not to desire. So if you really want nirvana, enlightenment, moksha, whichever term you're using, right, it can't be desired because it can't be conceived because true liberation, right, would be pretty much undefinable, undefinable. in our language, which makes it interesting to do a podcast on it, but yeah, we're, exactly. We're it makes it tricky. To, or I imagine <laughs> writing the book was hard. Too, oh, I can't right? imagine writing the book. I'm like, I'm sure a lot of the way we talk about it in the West now came from this book and books yeah. like it. So imagine doing it without this. Yeah, actually. Um, so this is just kind of a quote from this chapter, but I think it sort of encompasses a lot of it pretty nicely. So from the book now, the problem of what the mind is can now be seen to be the same as the problem of what the real world is. It cannot be answered, for every what is a class, and we cannot classify the classifier. Is it not then merely absurd to speak of the mind, the sita, at all, if there is no way of saying what it is? On the contrary, the mathematician Kurt Gödel has given us a rigorous proof of the fact that every logical system must contain a premise which it cannot define without contradicting itself. And that last part of that quote is a nice preview for the next episode. episode, But it it also shows how it feeds into Zen. You know, obviously we have limited time, so we can't spend too much on Mahayana. But it was uh, in many ways a stepping stone to the development of Zen. Like the stage towards getting to Zen. Because I think here this next chapter is actually about Zen, the development of Zen. We can read this quotation here. That in other schools of Buddhism, awakening or bodhi seems remote and almost superhuman, something to be reached only after many lives of patient effort. But in Zen, there is always the feeling that awakening is something quite natural, something startlingly obvious, which may occur at any moment. If it involves a difficulty, it is just that it is much too simple. Zen is also direct in its way of teaching, for it points directly and openly to the truth and does not trifle with symbolism. Yeah, and this is where we're really getting into the main difference and what kind of rekindled my interest in Buddhism from a personal point of view, where Zen, the Zen awakening or uh, the term they use is Satori, is very different where it can be something that happens moment to moment or in anything. Right. And it's basically the same as flow. It is. Reading. That's Pretty exactly how flow. I interpreted it. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It's when you realize that you're doing something with your complete attention and with no desire for anything else, right? 
where you are just doing that thing. You're just being. Yeah, you are just walking. Right. You are just, you know, cleaning. You are right. just sitting. There is no striving to do something with it. There's not even the striving to meditate because right. in doing that, you're getting pulled out of flow. I, I think they give the example of striving while meditating is kind of like meditating with one eye open mm. where you have one eye on the practice and one eye on you doing the practice. Right. It's like you're zoomed out watching yeah. yourself do it. And in doing that, obviously, you can't successfully do it. It's kind of so. the opposite of like the life hacker mentality, right? Where like you're yeah. always doing something for something. For something. Yeah, or like, you know, you're reading these book summaries because... <laughs> yeah, because you think that it's like better than actually getting the substance of the book. Right. Yeah, yeah but it's like doing something for something else, right? right? As opposed to doing something for like, you're just, just doing that. Right, it's not doing for, it for anything in and of itself. Yeah. Um, well, I think actually this comes later in the book, but they were talking about how like a lot of the, the sort of Zen or Japanese like arts or things like the tea ceremony and stuff are intimately tied to that. Right. That same idea. Well, I really loved that highlight because, and to be fair, this is one of the areas that Watts has drawn some criticism, but he points out that in traditional original Zen, according to the old text that he read, there was not much focus on sitting meditation. Mm. It was much more focused on the bringing it into everything that you do in your life. Which so, is, that sounds like flow. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah. Well, it's yeah. like bring it into the gardening and the tea ceremony and the walking and the art and all of that. But then and he does give the caveat that he's like in Western society, a little sitting with, for no reason would do some good. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, he did, yeah, it was like well that's kind of what he says right is that uh, it may have been introduced as a way to get schoolboys who were studying yeah. in these temples to like chill out yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which you know i definitely believe yeah. and he also gives the caveat that it's possible that and he also gives the caveat that it's possible that the sitting meditation was so obvious like so obviously oh, important yeah. that maybe they felt they didn't have to say it but i think he had a caveat to that too yeah that where he doubted that, that where was he kind of doubted that was the case yeah. so i feel like that's just so interesting where if you think of meditation and zen not as a active thing you go do but a way of approaching life in general right i find that very helpful where yeah. it's not that you're trying to like fix your mind through meditation or like become because that fix thing right implies a process and a purpose implies a purpose to, to do doing it right and the whole point is that there is no purpose right. and so i feel like the way we've repurposed meditation in the west of oh this will cure your anxiety like this will make you more productive yeah. it's like well you're kind of missing the point right, right? <laughs> if you do it for anything then you're not really doing it yeah and actually like the directness of zen is something i just really respect and, and find it really interesting i think it was this idea of direct pointing i think is what they call it oh yeah i, I don't know how you pronounce that chichia um but yeah, he's talking about how like, uh, and I think this ties to the idea of the koan, these like basically riddles right. and how they're answered in seemingly a crazy or a completely unrelated way yeah. by the master, but they're basically extremely direct ways of getting to a question. It actually, in a weird way, it reminds me of some of the things that like Jocko says on okay. his podcast in the Q&A. I'm not saying Jocko's like a Zen master or anything, but... He is in his own way. He is but. in his own way. No, but like when people ask questions like, I've tried everything, I can't seem to wake up early, like what should I do? And he'll be like, just wake up early. Right. <laughs> like it's so direct and it does not imply that there's a process involved, right? Because I think like that's one thing that Zen had in contrast with other traditions of Buddhism mm. where they're saying, you know, work on your mind, like get better and then eventually you'll reach enlightenment, like it's this destination. Yeah. And in Zen, they're saying like, 
it'll just happen and you're not working towards anything. There's no like mountain that you're climbing. Right. You just do it. You're just doing it. Yeah. Um, well, that's sort of one of the points is that like in other Buddhism, you it's like it. binary. It's like a binary thing. It's like you're doing it or you're not doing it. Yeah. But it's not like a, it's not like you're striving. It's not to, a process. Yes. It's yeah, not like yeah, you're yeah. 10% of the way to enlightenment. Like it's not like a gamification kind of thing where you're like, you know, you've earned this belt or badge on the way up to something. Yeah. Because the one of the explanations he gives for that is how with other Buddhist traditions, you are doing something to become a Buddha. And in Zen, you are doing it because you already are one, yeah. right? It is just part of your being. It's a very different way of looking at it. Um, I, don't know, I personally find it much more refreshing. Yeah, same here. Maybe it's just because we don't want to go to a monastery and like UK, you can still go to that monastery. <laughs> yeah. There's plenty of those. Right? <laughs> I mean, doing the Koan study is years and years, yeah. right? And living there and trying to understand these riddles, right? I mean, they're so interesting, right? Like, here's one, right? So the question is, everybody has a place yeah. of birth. Where is your place of birth? And then the response is, early this morning, I ate white rice gruel. Now I'm hungry again. Or... How is my hand like the Buddha's hand playing the lute under the moon? I, like I can kind of see the association, yeah. but I, I was like, I hate to say that, right? Because I'm right. sure that there's just so much beyond it yeah, exactly. that, uh, that we're not understanding. And they're supposed to be answered to non-verbally, right? Oh, yeah. That's part of the direct pointing is that a lot of them have some sort of demonstrated action that goes with them, mm. showing that they understand, understand it in like this non-verbal way. Yeah, I don't know. But it also, I mean, he also gives the caveat of like, if you have to explain what it means, it's kind of like a joke. Right. If you have to explain what it means. You don't totally understand it. You don't get it. Yeah. Or it's not funny anymore. Yeah, right? exactly. Like <laughs> so I guess then in the rest of the book, he dives into the actual principles and practice within Zen Buddhism. And we were talking about this before the show. I felt like this part of the book was weaker, where after the first section, I felt like I got it. And this was just kind of re-highlighting some of those ideas. It was still interesting. Uh, but definitely maybe you should not. give your theory on why that, <laughs> well, why that I mean, is. <laughs> my theory is that he had the first part of the book and the publisher said that, okay, this is too short. We can't publish this. You need to add more. And so then he went back and said, okay, well, I guess we're adding like a practice section because it definitely did not have the same energy and depth, I think, that the first section had. But there's still some good stuff in here, really just about how we are or how to practice it and how to think about it. And there, there are some examples that are helpful, right? Like, uh, in terms of thinking in a Zen way, right? Yeah. We don't sweat because it's hot. The sweating is hotness, right? And there's always this duality where we can say that the sun is light because of the eyes, but it's also equally correct to say that the eyes see light because of the sun. Yeah, There's both sides to everything, right? The moon doesn't create the reflection on the water and the water doesn't create the reflection of the moon. They right. need each other they for that to other. exist. And then everything exists in relation to something else. I liked the uh, tree and wind example that he gave. It was just the same idea, same section, yeah. but where oh, he was yeah, talking yeah. about how like the trees kind of give you the bodily form of the wind. Right. Because without anything to blow low on the wind is just like it's not really doing and yeah. like you can't see it if you can't you feel can't it feel and it, you, you can't, can't see it yeah then there's no indication that it's even there <laughs> right right and it's kind of where that if a tree falls in the forest and doesn't yeah. make a sound or like and no one's around here it doesn't make a sound right on one level everything does exist in relation to other things yeah which and i think the point the, they're making here yeah yeah and even the description of something as a sound Mm. is like an artificial concept. That's a right? really good point. Because yeah. it's really, I mean, it's just energy. Yeah. Right? It's just moving through the air. In that particular form. In that form, right? And we're able to interpret it as sound. 
but that's where it gets like kind of weird and confused. Some other like aliens from another planet might interpret that as touch yeah, or something exactly. or like just some other. feel it. Yeah. Some that blind actually, people can yeah. do echolocation, right? Really? Yeah. Well, there's the blind mountain bike rider where he literally. I'm not familiar at yeah, all. Okay, this, well, this sounds incredible. We'll have to put a link or a video in the show notes, that's but it's so a guy who got so good at echolocation that he can mountain bike. <laughs> it's crazy. Wow. Yeah. And Is there can, a video of this or something? Yeah. yeah, yeah there's Man. videos of it. But he can like pick up objects in his environment. He knows what shape things are. He can recognize people. So again, going back to what is your reality, right? You get exposed to any parts of it and you can change your perceptions. Yeah. But also if we don't have something to put an object in contrast to, then we can't give it any form in the first place. Right. So nothing exists in isolation. Right. Going back, I think a lot of sections of this part of the book are basically deeper versions of what the concepts that have already been brought up. But one section I really liked about you know, this idea of like giving up control where he, and this is from the book. So he says, we feel that our actions are voluntary when they follow a decision and involuntary when they happen without decision. That part makes me think that, okay, that's like, yeah, that's when you do feel out of control is when something happens to you. And when you decide you want to do something and it happens, you feel like you're in control. But then he follows that up by saying, but if decision itself were voluntary, every decision would have to be preceded by a decision to decide an infinite regression, which fortunately does not occur. Oddly enough, if we had to decide to decide, we would not be free to decide. <laughs> we are free to decide because decision happens. We just decide without having the faintest understanding of how we do it. In fact, it is neither voluntary nor involuntary. Yeah. So again, going back to like this idea that the dualities are an illusion, it's like they're there, like they're paired, but they're also almost negating each other. Yeah, negating each other or like allowing each other to exist. Because yes. it's yeah. sort of like, I guess this is one of the problems with AI is you yeah. need to build emotion or some system like it into a machine in order to help it decide. It's right, like humans who have had brain damage where they're perfectly rational can't decide to do anything. Because if you ask them, you know, would you rather get Thai food or Mexican food? They will just start going through all of the arguments for and against, for and against each of them. And they'll spend like hours trying to figure out exactly which one they should get or there's also just like the bird and donkey example right it's oh like, where you put it halfway. yeah donkey equally hungry and thirsty you know in between water and food will like starve to death and die of like, thirst, die of thirst right? <laughs> so you need something to nudge it in a direction you can't have this that that pure rationality yeah this go for tangent, it but this might be a tangent that might be also be relevant to next week do you think emotion is like a condensed form of information processing? Oh, like heuristic? Yeah. Is it like a heuristic? But it's I wouldn't say that it problem. is a heuristic. It's definitely the source of heuristics, mm. right? It's like we obviously we cannot be purely rational because it would take right. too long. And so we need a shortcut. Right. And that's where emotions come in. Yeah. But we still have the same problem here that they describe, which is like awesome. that infinite regression. Of infinite regression. I don't think we do because I actually think emotion throws just some randomness into the mix. Mm, okay. Right. Yeah. So, so it's that like, solves the problem. Though. Yeah. Emotion isn't rational. Yeah. Right. It's just these lizard brain reflexes. Right. And then that helps us pick from mixed among the options. Of, uh, mixed with a bit of randomization because yeah. randomization solves the problem. Exactly. If you think about it. It, just, it might not be the ideal solution, which is why humans are irrational creatures. But it is a solution. If you push the donkey in one direction, yeah. he'll survive. Or he gets hit by a rock on one side. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, or like something a gust happens. of wind. Yeah, right? like something could happen. Yeah, exactly. So you need emotion That's to give randomness. you a little nudge. That's yeah. the randomness. Yeah. I like it. Uh, but speaking of that, this thermostat analogy oh, I thought I was so that. great. I love, I love this. Where a lot of people think of being zen right and like buddhism as trying to have this perfect constant awareness and it's not really about that it's more about recognizing when you're moving away from it and pulling back and so 
they talk about the thermostat here. And basically, if you know how a thermostat works, if you set it for 70 degrees, it doesn't try to keep the room at perfectly 70 degrees. Right. It tries to keep it within a range of like 68 to 72. So yeah. it'll let it heat up to 72, take it down 68, let it go back to 72, down 68. Because if you tried to keep it right at 70, it would constantly be on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off, right? Yeah. And uh, then he ties it back to human happiness, right? Ang- and anxiety. And anxiety, yeah. Right. If you yeah. think that you have to be perfectly happy all the time, you will just be riddled with anxiety the moment you move away from that. But in reality, those cycles are very natural. And it's more about like catching the cycles as they're happening and moving back in the right direction. Yeah, or also being more willing to like increase your... Your, your range, range yeah. right? Uh, to be more like a thermostat as right. opposed to like trying to be fixed at that 70. I just found that to be really, really interesting. And then also like this part actually made me think more that human brains are like computers. Really? And yeah, because it's like, okay, this a thermostat is a machine, right? Operating off machine principles and is showing something that's very similar to human anxiety. So we're like much more complicated than a thermostat, right? Obviously. But when somebody has that, you know, fixed number of, or not number, but like the equivalent of the fixed 70 degree, you know, happiness number, and they're not able to stay there and they exhibit this sort of like anxious, like on off, on off, on off symptom. It seems exactly like what the thermostat's doing. But, well, no, because I think it's different because the the thermostat doesn't do that. And that's, I think that's what he's saying. No, no, it does if you tried to set it and you didn't have that range. Oh, and if you didn't have the range. Yeah, 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 There's like that whole section about like how if there was no range, the thermostat basically shakes itself to death. Like or the the cooling and heating mechanism basically shakes itself to death and it can't exist without the range. But I feel like the natural human brain allows for the range so in that way it's kind of not like a computer or it's like it has a range naturally it has a range naturally yeah it was like an optimized version of that it's like a better version than a computer right but it's still like operating off the same principles similar principle yeah right like that's where i found it to be pretty interesting yes there's just a few other i feel like ideas that we want to touch on here and uh there's this whole section on zazen so the seated meditation and the koans and you know, we talked about this idea where you're not doing it to become a Buddha, you're doing it because you believe you are already and you're trying to practice that way of life. And this is where he really, I think, criticizes or challenges the popularity of seated meditation, Mm. which I found to be one of the more interesting parts of the book, where he's especially saying that like, doing long periods of quiet sitting only seems unnatural to us because we live such a fast-paced, hectic life Mm. and that it's actually a totally natural thing to just sit quietly for a while, right? All other animals do it, right? Right. You hang out with the dog for a while, you realize they'll very happily (laughs) just like sit and be quiet, except for this dog, apparently. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this dog, I've only seen that happen once. (laughs) Yeah, very briefly. I mean, one of my friends has a cat and was saying his cat takes like eight different naps before noon. (laughs) (laughs) But it's very short, obviously, but he's like... Laying around doing nothing. Just hanging out. Yeah. Right. And he says like American Indians do it. He says peasants of almost all nations will just kind of sit around and hang out. This reminds me of in praise of idleness. Yeah. I was going to say, it's really just that we've all gotten used to a certain pace of life where it's hard to go back. I, I wrote about this in an article recently on like the switch from search to social. Oh, yeah. And one of the points that I made in there is that part of the reason I think people are on their phones so much when they're at dinners is that they don't know how to entertain themselves simply having a conversation anymore. Oh, right. Where we're used to this like Las Vegas casino <laughs> level of entertainment at all times. And so the idea of just sitting and talking to someone is horrifically boring and we just can't do it. Right. We and seem so, to do it for multiple hours yeah, on a weekly we, basis, <laughs> but. <laughs> 
<laughs> but granted, the books are pretty good. So exactly. maybe that, it's not each other, but it's yeah. the books. <laughs> uh, but yeah, and so like sitting in quietly for 20 minutes is an incredibly intense right. version of that. Right? Enormous amount of time yeah. in that case. And it's funny too, because like when you're on your phone, a lot of times you are talking to people. Right. But it, but you can talk to like 20 people at once. Right, exactly. Yeah. And it's also like you never know what notification you're going to get next. Exactly. So. And they're gifts yeah. and <laughs> like go on Reddit. <laughs> Yeah, if all else fails, you go to Reddit or Twitter. Yeah, exactly. There'll be something to there's entertain always you. Some, there's always some new controversy that you can tackle. Something to get angry to about for yep. 20 minutes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're totally right mm-hmm. about that. <laughs> uh, but then it really highlights this Zen, I guess you would call it enlightenment, which is Satori. Yeah. And it's not this sudden, complete awakening where you're magically a Buddha now. It's just those sudden intuitive ways of seeing into anything, whether that's a name you forgot or seeing the deepest principles of Buddhism or just being in flow in your work. It's when you're just like fully immersed in that awareness and presence and not in the past or future. I feel like that's the biggest part. And I just, I found that like a way more refreshing version of quote unquote enlightenment, right? Because we've all had that experience, right? And that's a great feeling when it just suddenly seems like an idea comes out of nowhere or you just feel completely aware of what's going on. Those little moments during the day, or it might not even happen daily, right? But where you suddenly feel like you just woke up. I know exactly. I mean, everybody has felt that in some ways. Yep. And And it can be the most mundane things. You can be like doing the dishes and have that feeling. Or you could be like, I mean, it happens sometimes during working, right? Of course. But sometimes even just like walking around, you get that. But you can't really make it happen. No, you can't make it happen. And the crazy thing too, I don't know if you get this, but every time it happens to me, I feel a little depressed afterwards because then my mind immediately goes to like, wow, what was I doing? all the time leading up to this, right? Like, where was I really? What yeah. was I thinking about? And it's it's so weird. You were like half alive. Yeah, I was like half or alive, yeah. right? Despite, you know, I feel like we are in that zone right now in this conversation between the parts where Nikki pulls us out of it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I also feel like even within those flow states, you can have those awakenings too, right? Oh, yeah. And it's so nice to have a version of that that you can relate to your reality which is, I feel, why Zen is so much more attractive, at least to me. Do you think that Zen is getting more popular or like, I I don't know, I think it's, this could be totally just perception, but it seems that more people are meditating now than ever before. I don't know if that's with like the Zen principles in mind or not. (laughs) Well, no, so I was actually going to say, very coincidentally, I had a conversation with a friend while I was reading this book, uh, and he actually writes a lot online, Sebastian Marshall, and he was saying how meditation, as it's getting popular right now, is much more Southern Indian style meditation, where you're doing it in pursuit of a goal, right? Oh, interesting. You're doing yeah, it you are for, for to calm down, to calm down, anxiety. for enlightenment, yeah. for you know that fullness of experience. Yep. And what he was saying is that what he likes a lot more is the Zen style of meditation, which is not popular in the West. Right. It's not right. really talked about as much. Where you're not doing it for anything, you're just doing, doing it, it, right? And you're trying to work it into everything and being like a little more aware of when you are not in the moment, right? When you are trying to do two things at once. Uh, there's this example that they give where they basically say when you're walking, walk. When you're sitting, sit. Oh, yeah. Just don't wobble. And yep. I feel like most of us are wobbling. Yeah, most between of the time. multiple activities or multiple thoughts right. in our head. So you're walking and listening to a podcast. You're walking and tweeting, right? You're talking to a friend and you're responding to text messages, right? We're kind of always. If you think about it, I, part of the reason might be that the Zen version doesn't allow you to feel productive. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it might yeah, be know. ultimately what it's tied back to is like, you okay, don't get I to can't. build that streak yeah. on headspace. Right. <laughs> it might be that it might yeah. just be just it's probably harder to monetize. 
you know? Yeah, it's definitely harder to monetize. Harder to monetize. But even just to convince people to like do it, right? It's like, well, man, I got such a busy day. Like, how can I? But the thing that's cool about Zen is it can happen no matter what you're doing. You could just be talking to somebody. Just try to be fully present in that conversation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a really attractive part of it, at least to me. Oh, yeah. Um, Have you ever read the book Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? I have not read it, actually. I'd be down to reread that one. Yeah. I, I read it before I read any of this Zen stuff. Okay. And I still thought it was amazing. But it has like a lot of these concepts. I'm now seeing where they were popping up mm. in that book. You would love that book, I think. Because mm. it ties a lot of like the Eastern and Western thoughts together. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, maybe that'll... Maybe stay we'll tuned. That'll be a, be a yeah. future, uh, future episode. Um, but the reason I brought that one up is like they use motorcycle maintenance as like the sort of everyday activity upon which the zen mindset i guess is applied to yeah so it's something that's seemingly mundane mechanical like not easy but like it's just a normal task you're fixing a motorcycle but you can do that in this you can mindset. do it mindfully yeah yeah exactly yeah, should we just finish up with some of these notes on zen and the arts sure so the last section he touches on is zen and the arts which, as we were saying, right, the zazen, the seated meditation was maybe not a big part of the practice for a lot of history. And it came out in these other areas. And I think this is why so much of Japanese architecture and like visiting there is just so gorgeous, especially yeah. up in Kyoto. Oh, yeah. Where it's so clear that so much of it was built purely for the sake of building it. Yeah. Like these temples, these gorgeous structures and the Zen gardens and the gates and the buildings, and the paintings. The paintings, that's what I was just going to say. Yeah, yeah. right. It's like, it's like clearly the the creation itself was a big part of the reward. It's like the process was the reward. I think, again, that's another idea that's popped up from all these yeah, things. Yeah, come up a lot, right? Yeah. It's like, you it's like another to, stoic. Yeah, it's a very stoic well. idea. Yeah. Uh, it was in the Gita as well. It was in the like, Gita. But finite and infinite games yep. right <laughs> the creation is the infinite game like trying to reach the end is the finite game mm. and yeah even no end in the yeah and yeah there's i mean no discrete well, end for an infinite game exactly right? yeah. yeah and what he's saying here too is like the travel right we talked about travel and journeys a yeah. lot in finite infinite games and uh from the section right a world which increasingly consists of destinations without journeys between them which only values getting somewhere as fast as possible becomes a world without substance one can get anywhere and everywhere and yet the more this is possible the less is anywhere and everywhere worth getting to <laughs> right we talked about this yeah you literally could have lifted that out of finite infinite games yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's it's kind of crazy actually related to that though do you ever wonder like what it used to be like to journey maybe from like europe to asia or like europe wow, to the U- to wild. america yeah like yeah like a one month long spending boat a month journey. on a boat just to get there <laughs> it yeah. must have been an experience that we just don't you know get i know today right? it's a business idea for somebody yeah like for recreating like, that experience recreating that experience for people who have too much time and money <laughs> you know, I, I actually think that experiential and no wi-fi Although then you might not get the the solopreneurs, but yeah, it would be hard to convince. But if you had Wi-Fi, it turned into like a co-working space on the ocean or something. Yeah, (laughs) and then you just go on nomad cruise. That we work acquires you. Yeah, (laughs) we work Atlantic Ocean. We cruise. (laughs) (laughs) We work. If you're listening to this, we expect. Yeah, send us send us an email for uh, negotiation terms. 
Uh, but yeah, so he just kind of ends the section with the the point of these arts is doing them rather than the accomplishments. Mm, yeah. Uh, but more than this, the real joy of them lies in what turns unintentionally in the course of practice, just as the joy of travel is not nearly so much in getting where one wants to go as in the unsought surprises which occur on the journey. Yeah, it's spot on. And it applies to any kind of journey Every as time. well, yeah. right? But I find it in work stuff too. Yeah, right? totally. Like being willing to constantly update goals based on new opportunities or things that happen, right? If you're just thinking of, oh, you know, one day we're going to have this big exit, right? And right. be super successful, right? That's not going to be motivating. Right, but it's not. Yeah. Playing the infinite game and expanding the horizons. How do you keep it going? Exactly, how do you keep expanding, it going? Keep like, playing, yeah. yeah keep I think you were, you were talking maybe in one of our conversations or perhaps it was on an episode of like when you had the Nomad goal of where when you were living in like Argentina. As soon as I hit the Nomad, like- You hit the number. The four hour You hit the number week, you needed. Yeah, yeah, go to Argentina and not work as soon as i got it i was like man i'm so depressed yeah <laughs> like what do i do now because it's interesting because it's like all the joy comes in the but i'm sure the journey up to getting to that was really fun yeah that was the thing right it's getting there was it's, so fun yeah and then it, as soon as i hit it it's like Rrr. exactly like then it's like oh this is over right but yeah, yeah. it's so interesting how the, all the fun comes on the journey which is why all those ideas of like oh well once you reach this monetary goal or you reach like this or that you know, physical material goal. When you get that car, you buy that house, like you'll be happy. It's not how it works. Well, I think it can work as long as you are framing it in the further goals it will allow you to pursue, the further games it'll let you play. Yes, the further games it'll let you play. Yes, I agree. I I have some friends who will say- That makes more sense. Yeah, Yeah. who will say like, I want to make 5 million by 30 and then just retire and chill. And I'm like, that's not going to make you happy. But then I have other friends who are like, I want to make 5 million by 30 and then transition to angel investing and get to like meet startup founders and work and hang out with them. And it's like, okay, that that makes sense. They're a financial goal. That's an actual, it enables you to play this exactly. a different game, right? Yeah, uh, now you're playing another game. Or play it better with different rules or something. Right. Yeah. Expand the horizons. By the way, if anyone hasn't listened to the Finite and Infinite Games You guys episode, have to. You have so to. Good. <laughs> and you have to read the book. You gotta read the book. Just being like the right frame of mind when you read that book. Yeah, is, that, can that be, one will change how you think about it. It's the also world. short. Like, mm-hmm. it's not a long book. None of these pages. books have been long that we've been doing besides Sovereign Individual. Uh, was probably Anti-fragile. Anti-fragile is a Mastery. Mastery is long. Yeah, but those were like the early ones. Early ones, yeah. Well, next, next week's is long. Yeah, next week's, that's what I was going to yeah, say. Yeah, we, we've like, been slacking. Because <laughs> Power of Myth was like 150 pages, maybe. Yeah. Maybe 200 at most. 200, probably, yeah. This one's 200. Finite Infinite Games like 150. Yeah, 150. Amusing Ourselves, 150. Chaos was zero. You guys just have to listen to the episode. You don't even have to read a book. Chaos. Not chaos, sorry. Chaos. Idleness. Idleness. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. Like Idleness. Yeah. Idleness was like, what, 14 pages yeah. when we typed it out? Well, this is the thing is that I've realized kind of recently is that the best books are either pretty short or pretty long, Mm. right? Anything in the publisher optimized 250 page (laughs) range is probably either fluffed or overly constricted. What's G? Usually fluffed. GEB 700. 700. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a big guy. It's a big (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We're going to have a busy week ahead of us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, any, any last thoughts on the way of Zen? Should we wrap up with this quotation here? Yeah, no other thoughts besides just um, certainly made me think. Did make sure. me think as well. All right, well, we'll finish up with this quotation. And thank you, everyone, for joining us as always. Leave a review. Tell your friends. Show notes are online at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. One must simply face the fact that Zen is all that side of life which is completely beyond our control and which will not come to us by any amount of forcing or wrangling or cunning stratagems, which produces only fakes of the real thing. But the last word of Zen is not an absolute dualism. 
the rather barren world of controlled action on the one side and the spontaneous world of uncontrolled surprise on the other. For who controls the controller? Thanks, guys. See you next time. See you next time. All right. We hope that everybody listening enjoyed that episode of Made You Think. Hope it made you think about something. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't resist. Couldn't resist. No, it had to be said. But... As always, episode show notes and more are available at madeyouthinkpodcast.com. Definitely go check it out. Get the links to everything that we mentioned in the show. You can always hit us up on Twitter. I'm at Nat Eliason. And I'm at the Rail Neil S. So let us know what you thought of this episode and share it with a friend who you think might enjoy it. This podcast can only survive and grow with your help. And we would love it if you would let somebody else who you think might enjoy listening to these topics know about the show. Thanks, guys. See you next time.